previously on Not Past It, The Nazi Hunter. We told you about the fall of 1945, about how World War II just ended, and how the Allied powers put several captured Nazis on trial in Nuremberg. Commit crimes against peace, war crimes, and crimes against humanity. One of these war criminals... Adolf Eichmann. He was in charge of overseeing what was going to happen to the Jews. Eichmann went on the run right after the war ended and was nowhere to be found. People were looking for him, but they don't have a photo, so he disappeared. Enter Holocaust survivor and self-proclaimed Nazi hunter, Simon Wiesenthal. I know what I'm doing against these criminals. It's not the answer for the tragedy. But this is a warning for the murderers of tomorrow. Simon suspected that Eichmann had ended up somewhere in Argentina. That pig, Adolf Eichmann, is living in Buenos Aires. And this is where things start to get very 007. From Gimlet Media, this is Not Past It, a show about the stories we can't quite leave behind. Every episode, we take a moment from that very same week in history and tell you the story of how it shaped our world. I'm Simone Polanin. 62 years ago this week, on May 11th, 1960, Israeli agents captured Adolf Eichmann to bring him to justice. This is part two of the story to hunt down one of the architects of the Holocaust. For part one, check out the link in the show notes. Today's episode sounds a whole lot like an international spy thriller, with a team of secret agents acting on behalf of a new government, and a showdown between a Nazi on the run and the man assigned to bring him to justice. This message will self-destruct after the break. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. One of the secret agents that hunted Nazi Adolf Eichmann in Argentina was Peter Malkin. I went to my mother. I said, I'm going to Paris. This is Malkin from an oral history housed by the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum. He became a secret agent as a young man. So secret, even his own mother didn't know about it. She said, you really go to Paris? What are you going to do this time? She never knew I worked in the Secret Service. Before Malkin became Israeli James Bond, he was a Jewish kid growing up in Poland in the 1920s and 30s. Malkin says he learned very quickly about the inescapable reality of being Jewish. I felt there's a big difference between me and the Polish. Because you couldn't describe yourself free. You always felt that you're Jewish. Nobody let you forget it. Sensing this hostility... 
1933, Peter and most of his immediate family got out of Poland and made their way to what was then British Palestine. But his older sister and her husband and kids stayed behind. They were killed, which would later haunt Malkin. It happened one thing. My relatives had been killed. My sister and three children and a brother had been killed. We call it Holocaust. Other European Jews began fleeing to British Palestine for safety. Growing up there, Malkin was just another kid getting into trouble, stealing from a local shop, sprinting off and leapfrogging over the old city walls to get away. This kind of mischief would later end up making him the perfect candidate for the new state of Israel's intelligence agency called Mossad. Initially, Malkin was assigned to travel to Israeli embassies in other countries and train their staff in how to detect bombs. Eventually, he also got real-deal assignments of counter-espionage. You know, badass spy shit. Then... In 1960, Malkin was assigned by his Mossad chief to his next very important, very secret mission. He called me in and said, you're going to South America. And I told him, what is it? You know, because uh, at that time to go to South America was like you go to the stars. At first, Malkin couldn't imagine why he would be sent to South America. Was it just another one of those embassy training missions? He said, no. You have been selected and chosen to go to capture Eichmann. I said I wanted to do it myself. Adolf Eichmann was an Austrian colonel in Hitler's Third Reich. At first, he was more of a pencil pusher. But then, in 1942, Eichmann was given a very specific job. The discussions and meetings that were undertaken to find out, well, how do we mass murder quickly? We're Germans, we're very efficient, we build great cars. We could probably kill people really well, too. Turo College distinguished professor and writer Thane Rosenbaum is a son of Holocaust survivors, a personal story that inspired him to study the Holocaust and Adolf Eichmann. He was sort of the Nazi operative that made the, literally made the trains run on time. So the concept of moving Jews, remember, a lot of this was resettlement, right? Yeah, resettlement. The Nazis needed to resettle people in order to kill them and move people en masse. This plan for transport and extermination was called the Final Solution, deporting people to concentration camps or extermination camps. And this was Eichmann's job. He was responsible for creating, organizing, and managing all this transportation, shuttling millions to their death. Many people attribute to Eichmann the sort of the mastermind of the final solution. After World War II ended, Eichmann disappeared and evaded being punished for his part in the Holocaust. But forces in the newly formed Israeli government wanted to change that. The operation to kidnap and return Eichmann to Israel to be prosecuted for mass murder of the Jewish people was called Operation Finale. It was a way of closing the loop on that euphemistic language. Operation Finale was also an opportunity for Israel. It could potentially help establish a strong reputation for its new government and its first prime minister, David Ben-Gurion. 
1958, Israel was just barely 10 years old, a new country without a story. But bringing Eichmann to justice, that could be a story. If we capture Eichmann and bring him to Israel, we are no longer a baby country. Maybe we should invest some resources in this. We're busy with other things, but maybe this could be the kind of thing that sends a message to the world, that this is almost a signature moment in our statehood. It's hard to imagine, but at this time, the greater world didn't have a real strong grasp of the atrocities committed by the Nazis. The term Holocaust wasn't even being widely used then. The horrific details were quickly lost in a world that was just desperate to recover and rebuild. If Eichmann was put on trial in Israel, he would have to account for all the murders he was responsible for. And that could establish a strong identity for this new country. They basically said, essentially, Israel is a nation of badass Jews. We're not a nation of victims. In order to establish this identity, Israeli agents would need to track down Nazis who had fled Europe. Andrew Nagorski is a former Newsweek foreign correspondent and editor. He's also the author of the book, The Nazi Hunters. He says that many Nazis ended up in Argentina because of its leader. Juan Perón, who was a very far-right dictator, had a lot of sympathy for the Nazis. And there was a large German community there that they could just absorb into. See, Juan Perón, the Argentinian dictator, wasn't just a Nazi sympathizer. Andrew says he also believed in that whole cliche of German industriousness. He saw these German Nazis as a way to pull a struggling old-world Argentina into a modern industrial powerhouse. But when Mossad tracked Eichmann down to Buenos Aires, they had to be discreet so as not to alert Argentinian officials and to keep Eichmann from finding out and disappearing completely. Israeli Prime Minister Ben-Gurion considered all these ramifications. He made the call. He spoke with only a few Mossad directors, kept it all hush-hush. Mossad was going to go to Argentina and kidnap Eichmann and then sneak him back to Israel. Operation Finale was a go. A whole team of Mossad agents from various places, under various pseudonyms, various fake passports, fake nationalities, all of whom have to come in in, under false pretenses to Argentina. In April of 1960, Mossad agents got their assignment. They packed their bags, grabbed their guns, their notebooks, their fake passports, their fake mustaches, and they boarded flights that would land them all the way in sunny Buenos Aires. They have several cars because the cars in Argentina at the time were real rickety jalopies and they couldn't, they were, they were afraid of them breaking down. And they staked out Eichmann's house. At least what they thought was Eichmann's house. They come to the house and the house is empty except for some painters inside. And it's clear that whatever families there have moved out. And they said, oh my God, we may be too late. When they looked around the house where Eichmann was supposed to be, there was no Eichmann, not even a trace. And they asked these 
painters, what's going on here? Didn't somebody live here recently? And said, oh yeah, yeah, there was this German family. They moved out a couple of weeks ago. The Mossad agents did have one lead. They knew that Eichmann's son worked at an auto repair shop nearby. The painters gave them the address. And when the agents got there, they found a young German-looking man working there. They suspected he could be Eichmann's son, but they had to confirm his identity first. So they came up with a plan, an oddly romantic one. They sent someone pretending to deliver a package for him, saying this is from an old, from a girlfriend, and she asked me to pass it along. And at first he's kind of suspicious, but then they follow this guy home to this other suburb. The agents found a new house, and in it, a man who fit Eichmann's description. Peter Malkin says they never let him out of their sight. So this time we went there, about three, four people, and we started to photograph the man. Over the course of weeks, Malkin and the rest of the team confirmed that the man was Eichmann. But the question remained, how did Eichmann get all the way from Germany, across Europe, across the Atlantic, all the way to Argentina, without anyone knowing? Well, it was all thanks to something called the rat line. The rat line was for those high Nazi officials, if they were identified and captured, that they were going to face the consequences. After World War II ended, Nazis like Eichmann went on the run. And they had help. There was a network of Nazi sympathizers from Germany, usually through Austria and then Italy, and then they get them on ships where they can inconspicuously, under assumed names with fake paper supplied by fellow Nazis, and they would sail to places like Argentina. Many high-ranking Nazis were helped by members of the Catholic Church, including some in the Vatican. Eichmann himself made it through the rat line with the help of a Catholic priest. He boarded a ship in Genoa, Italy, sailed for almost a month across the Mediterranean and through the Atlantic, and finally landed on the coast of Uruguay on a summer night in 1950. Eichmann stood on the bow of the ship, looking across the water, where he could see the big blinking lights of Buenos Aires in the distance. He'd cross over the next day, and start a brand new life in hiding. For weeks, Mossad held close watch of the family in this new house in the suburb of San Fernando, just a few miles drive outside of Buenos Aires. Mossad agents like Malkin hid out in far-off parked cars, turning the knobs on their binoculars, focusing in on Eichmann as he went about his daily routine. They noted which bus he took to and from work, what time he came home. They scribbled down notes documenting his every move. I saw him, when he come home, he plays with a small boy, six years old. Suddenly you see a family man. You don't see him in uniform, you see him playing with a child. They had snapped photos of Eichmann with his relatives, playing with his kids, being this loving family man. Such a contrast to the war criminal they knew this man to be. Finally, the Mossad chief pulled the trigger and ordered the kidnapping. On May 11, 1960, with the safe house prepared, 
Malkin and three other agents gathered together in two separate cars. On a gloomy evening, they drove in silence out to San Fernando and parked the cars near a quiet road named Garibaldi Street. The main car should be very near to the scene and the rain and the thunders horribly. They parked the two cars along this block, with one of the cars a few car lengths away from the other. On the first car, they popped the hood to make it look like it had broken down. He will walk through. Towards his house, he will see a parking car. The hood is up like something happened in the rain. The plan was, once Eichmann passed the first car, the agents would confirm his identity to the second car. Then, as he kept walking and got closer, Malkin would grab him. With everything in place, all they needed was Eichmann. They knew that every day, Eichmann left work and got on the same bus that would drop him off at Garibaldi Street at 7.30 p.m. It was about around half past seven. Every half hour was, was a bus. The bus pulled up, and there was no Eichmann. Suddenly, it happened that he didn't arrive, and we didn't see him. I kept my fear to myself. The agents worried that Eichmann had somehow caught wind of their plan and bolted before they could capture him. If that were the case, without any clues as to where he ran off, they would have to start their hunt all over, from scratch. They had to make a decision. Do we call it? Or do we wait? Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry, you guys. My spy phone is ringing. I'll be right back. Yes, Agent Palanin here. What's that? The bus came, but no Eichmann. Uh-huh. Copy. Copy. You want me to tell them that? All right. Okay. Hey, y'all. Welcome back. Before the break, we left the Mossad agents just as they were waiting for Adolf Eichmann, the Nazi official who had escaped to Argentina. But on the day of Operation Finale, when Malkin and the other agents were going to kidnap Eichmann from the bus he got off of every day, he was nowhere to be found. So they waited. Several minutes later, the next bus rolled to the stop. The doors rattled open, and a woman and a man stepped off onto the rainy sidewalk. Malkin squinted through the rain. There was a woman there, and she left her other place. And he started to move, step by step. Uh, I could hear the noise of his boots. There was Eichmann, getting closer and closer to Malkin and the waiting car, his boots crunching along the sidewalk. When he finally got within reach, Malkin sprung into action. I said, uno momentito, I could see his eyes. He was frightened, he started in a way to retreat one step. I said, to hell with everything, I jumped on him and we uh, fell together into the ditch. And I pushed him near, my, near me and hold his head and suddenly I heard a shout, a cry. 
The other agent in the car slammed on the gas and revved up the engine to drown out Eichmann's cry. I hold back his head that he couldn't open his mouth. And I took him on my shoulders and brought him up the ditch, put him into the car, closed the car, and we put him to the rear side, and we moved. The agents took Eichmann to the innermost secret room of the Mossad safe house. But I knew from the beginning I have to know what he has to say about many things. Inevitably, there was time to kill. Time when Malkin and Eichmann would be alone, together, one-on-one. He said to me, are you the man who captured me? I told him, yes, I'm the man who captured you. And then... The conversation started, and I said, you know, I've seen you many times through the window playing with your boy. I said, oh, what happened to my boy? Did you kill him? My family? No, Mossad, they were just after Eichmann. But it was gnawing at Malkin. This man before him was a frail, middle-aged father. How could he be the same man behind the murder of millions? of Malkin's own family members. I told him, really a family man. I want to ask you, why is it that the child six years old of my sister is dead and your son is alive? And he said to me, wasn't he Jewish? Look, my order was to bring all the Jews onto the trains, children, women, I couldn't do it otherwise. And then... When he reflected a little bit, he said, what about you? You didn't come through an order to catch me? I said, yes. But do you make the, you compare my catching you uh, to the orders that you got and you fulfilled them? What chances did you give to my sister and children or to the others? More than a week would pass before it was time for the next stage of Operation Finale, getting Eichmann out of Argentina and over to Israel. But that wasn't going to be straightforward. First of all, they had to keep this all on the DL. Plus, Israel's one-passenger airline, El Al, didn't have a direct flight to Buenos Aires. So, according to former Newsweek editor and correspondent Andrew Nagorski, Mossad agents had to get creative. They devised a plan of getting the Israeli government to send a delegation over a special plane for the 150th anniversary of Argentine independence, which was coming up in May. This anniversary flight made for the perfect cover. This way, an El Al flight with only a few Israeli delegate passengers could fly to Buenos Aires and get Eichmann back to Israel without setting off alarm bells. And they said, okay, what we'll do is we'll have this official delegation come and then we'll smuggle him onto the plane. Now that they had the flight, they had to figure out how to get him onto the plane without looking suspicious. The agents prepared disguises, colorful pants, buttoned up dress shirts, and these cute little colorful vests. They put Eichmann in the same getup. They looked like regular El Al flight attendants. But there was one last thing. 
They didn't want Eichmann acting up or trying to call for help as they transported him. So they drugged him. They didn't totally knock him out, but they injected him with enough stuff to get him real loopy. Real weekend at Bernie's. They propped Eichmann up between two agents and left the safe house for the airport. And then when they got him out of the car a short distance just to the steps to go go into the plane, they sort of had him basically work. Not dragging him, but had him lifted up enough so they could get him up the stairs. And they say, oh, you know, he had too much of a good time in Buenos Aires. You know, it's a fun town after all. They walked a drugged up Eichmann to the back of the plane. The flight crew knew not to ask questions. The agents communicated with the pilot, making sure everything was a go. And just before midnight, they left for Israel, where finally the Holocaust architect Adolf Eichmann would be tried. Over a year later, Eichmann was found guilty and later executed. I gotta say... This story feels like it's ripped from the pages of some spy thriller. But the moment that sticks with me isn't the espionage, the screeching cars, the secret kidnapping. It's a much quieter moment. Those few hours Adolf Eichmann and Peter Malkin shared in that cramped room in the safe house. Eichmann nervously trying to avoid eye contact. Malkin staring at the man who helped shuttle his own relatives to their deaths trying to wrap his head around Eichmann's actions. I was very disappointed till the last moment. I looked at him. I never could describe him as a monster. And even in the, in the moment I saw him standing there, I felt to hell with you. How did it happen? Death and destruction on an unfathomable scale. This is what hovered over the men as they talked in that small room. The hugeness of a devastating history in a moment so small, so personal. It was a confrontation that, in the end, seemed to change very little in Eichmann's mind. When I, he was standing there and said, the Jews had been microbes to Germany and we had to kill them. After all this, he didn't change. He believed what he has done is right. But he said, it's not me who did it. I was only the instrument. But it was an excellent instrument. Not Past It is a Spotify original produced by Gimlet and ZSP Media. This episode was produced by Ramoy Phillip. Next week, Not Past It turns one year old. So we're looking back on a year's worth of lessons learned. It's not a straight line. It's not A to B equals C, but it's a circuitous line. But that's what history is. The rest of our team is producer Sarah Craig. Our associate producer is Julie Carley. Laura Newcomb is our production assistant. The supervising producer is Erica Morrison. 
Editing by Zach Stewart-Pontier and Andrea B. Scott. Fact-checking by Jane Ackerman. Sound design and mixing by Hansdale Shee. Original music by Sax Kicks Ave, Willie Green, Jay Bless, and Bobby Lord. Our theme song is Toko Liana by Coco Co. With music supervision by Liz Fulton, technical direction by Zach Schmidt, show art by Elise Harvin and Talia Rockman. The executive producer at ZSP Media is Zach Stewart-Pontier. The executive producer from Gimlet is Matt Schiltz. Also, for more of Andrew Nagorski's work, check out his latest World War II chronicle, Saving Freud, The Rescuers Who Brought Him to Freedom. Special thanks to Michael Berenbaum, Dr. Patricia Heberer-Rice, the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum, the Jeff and Toby Her Oral History Archive, and to Lydia Polgreen, Abby Ruzica, Dan Behar, Jen Hahn, Emily Wiedemann, Liz Stiles, and Joshua Bianchi. Follow Not Past It Now to listen for free, exclusively on Spotify. Click the little bell next to the follow button to get notifications for new episodes. And while you're there, why don't you rate the show five stars? Come on, don't be shy. You can follow me on Twitter, at Simone Palanen. Thanks for hanging. We'll see you next week. I remember years ago, they kidnapped a rocket scientist, and they, they, got, they got, I don't know, no one wants to talk about how they did it. He ended up in an Israeli prison. They got him out of a tra- in a train. I don't know what they did.